You can open your Bibles if you have them uh, to 1 Samuel 25 is where we'll be mostly. 1 Samuel 25. And um, that will be basically in that chapter all tonight. Um, Last time, which was a couple weeks ago, last time we met, um, David had, remember, saved the town of Kilah, uh, and, but then he determined through uh, asking the Lord, seeking the Lord's will, first of all, whether it was the Lord's will for him to go in and save the town of Kilah from the, the Philistines, and the Lord said, yes, go, and I'll give them into your hands. And so he went, he was eager to do that. He goes into the town, he saves the town, and then he learns that Saul... Is uh, has found out that he is in this town and pinned in, and he is in a city that's fortified that has no back exit. And so since David is pinned in, Saul's plan is to come straight through the front gate and petition the people there, probably under threat, to give him to turn over David. And so David says, hey, Lord, will, will the, these people turn me over? And God says, yes, they will. And he says, okay. So uh, he gets out of there and leaves for Engedi, the, the stronghold of Engedi, which is all the way over by the Dead Sea. I'll, I'll show you a map in just a minute, just to remind you of the geography uh, in just a second. But he, he moves to Engedi, and Saul remember, or finds out that he is in Engedi, and the, some of another neighboring community, the Ziphites, seek to curry favor with Saul. And so they turn David over to him and say, we know exactly where he is. He's roaming around over there. And so he, he goes down into the land of Ziph first and is searching for David. And he gets really close to getting David and, and having him hemmed in again. And right about that point, somebody comes up to Saul and says, Philistines are raiding the town. And so they have to bolt out of there and go back and save the town. And David manages to, to escape. Well, once he comes back to Engedi. And Saul is, uh, goes, wa- walks into a cave in Engedi, and David um, there has an opportunity to take him down, and he, he doesn't. He refrains from doing so, and they develop this temporary ceasefire, he and Saul, because he makes it known to Saul, I could have killed you, and I didn't, because I don't want to. I don't want to kill you, and you want to kill me. Why? And Saul is temporarily remorseful. And they have this sort of, they work out this temporary ceasefire, but it's, it's not until uh, even just a couple chapters later, Saul is right back at David again. So, uh, but, but there's this temporary ceasefire that goes on. And so David has a moment, we'll say, of freedom when he's in, in Getty. And so we, we look at our, our passage this morning, and I want to start off by reading out of the text here, somebody read for us 1 Samuel 25, 1 to 7.
All right. Now, what is the first thing that you see in this text? Samuel's dead. Now, all right. Who is Samuel? He's a prophet. Just any old prophet? No, he's not just any old prophet. Who is he? He what? He's got two books named after him, so that's a pretty big deal, right? Uh, Samuel was a judge. He was really, before David, the closest thing to a prophet, priest, and king that was really had up until this, up until this point, at least all the way back to Moses and, and before. But um, So Samuel is, is, is a really big deal. Now, pardon me if I don't think that the text does a lot of justice to his life, um, Moses gets this sort of grand exit where God buries his body. Nobody knows where it is. And there, there's a lot of this, you know, kind of pomp and circumstance a lot, around a lot of these famous figures. Uh, Joseph, Joseph, uh, Israel, their bones are carried away and done. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that are done with these big patriarchs and, bi- and big characters in the Bible. Why does Samuel just get a little... Samuel died. Now... All of Israel, and you just sort of it just sort of moves on. It's 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 like really quick. Does this cause for you, the reader, to think to yourself, this seems significant somehow, doesn't it? Uh, Samuel played a really important role, particularly for Saul. What, what did he do for Saul? What was Samuel's role for Saul as king? He told him what to do. Now, turns out Saul didn't want to listen. And Saul never listened to Samuel and disobeyed almost everything that he said. But what Samuel said was coming straight from God. And so Samuel's telling Saul and essentially warning him and setting the guidelines for him. Um, If Saul would have listened to Samuel, would have listened to the voice of Samuel explicitly and done everything that he said, Saul would still be king. Well, not today, but he would still be king in our text. Uh, There would be no threat to his kingship. He would have the kingdom. So Samuel was like, you know, those gutters you put in the lanes in bowling, keep you from going into the alley, you know, those little bumpers or whatever. Samuel was there to guide the king and to keep them from stumbling into foolishness by telling them what God's decrees really were. So... We get into this passage in 1 Samuel 25, and the first thing that we learn is Samuel's dead. Now, that should give us a little bit of panic. We know David is the chosen one, the anointed one, and Samuel, the one who could communicate to him on behalf of God, has deceased. So, potentially the door is open now for David to stumble into utter foolishness and dismay. And maybe... If it's possible, lose the kingdom? I don't know. But it seems like in the text we should kind of get a little bit of queasiness in our stomach. What's going to happen to David? Well, the next thing that we find out in the passage is that David hears of a wealthy man in the village. Robert, will you plug that in? (laughs) Or somebody, you know where it's at. (laughs) I can't work my little remote until that happens. I think I can do it on my iPad. Here we go. Do what? Yeah, I took it out for, to take to the BCM. Sorry. Um, until I get my remote back. Uh, so we go to the next slide. Uh, so D- David hears of this wealthy man named Nabal, 
who is in a village local to us. Let me see if it, if it works. It does work. Yay, we have our slides again. Okay, um, so David hears of this man named Nabal, and he lives in Maon, and he owned extensive lands and flocks and lots of, lots of things. He, he was a very rich man, but he was an idiot. Um, I mean, literally, his name Nabal means fool. And uh, so you immediately know that this guy, this guy's an idiot. And we're going to find out just how much of an idiot he is. It, it even tells us in the, in the text that his wife, she was good looking, but he was badly behaved. All right. So the text just kind of owns it. He's like, he, he was an idiot and his wife was really pretty and sweet and nice. And, and honestly, he didn't deserve her is basically what the text is telling you. And so, which is setting you up for what's going to happen at the end of the text, obviously. But, but uh, he's really badly behaved now, but he's, he's loaded, okay? And so David and his men are absolutely starving. But what David did not do is he didn't take up the practice, which was common to an outlaw in the day, of appropriating property. So where David is located in Engedi. And where, uh, where this man Nabal sent his workers out into the field to let his flocks roam, they're close to one another. So the town, I'll show you the geography in just a second, but the, his, his town, they basically share kind of a, a common pasture land uh, on either side of them. And so David, basically, as would be common practice for an outlaw, is to take his men, remember they have swords, and they're good fighters, and I don't know if you know much about shepherds. They tend not to be, okay? And so, they, so they're, they're in the pasture land right there in front of David. And David, even though him and his men are starving, does not take advantage of these shepherds that are out there in the middle of the field by either hurting them or taking the, taking, you know, picking off little sheep and things like that. Um, and he, so he doesn't do that. And so now David is really hungry, and having not taken advantage of Nabal's flock, he thinks to himself, Nabal owes me. Now, today we call that racketeering, okay? But back then it was just common parlance, okay? So, so David is, uh, is, is thinking to himself, well, I didn't, I didn't kill your flock, I didn't take your sheep, I didn't take your food, even though you wouldn't have missed it. Uh, so I'm going to go out there, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you for it. Basically, is what is what he's going to do. Now it seems like that David is because David is a, a Judean and from the tribe of Judah, and it seems like so is Nabal that uh, they have, uh, or that at least Nabal's in that area that they have common ancestry, or at least they have reason to. Uh, for, for people to ally with David. And it seems like Nabal doesn't really care about allying with anybody. He just doesn't want anybody taking his stuff. And so we're going to find that there's this confrontation in the text. So you look at 1 Samuel 25, 15. Um, this is the men of Nabal reporting to the wife, uh, Abigail, yet the men were very good to us. Talking about David and his men were, were very good to us. And we suffered no harm and we did not miss anything when we were in the field as long as we went with them. Um, and so then uh, 
David sees this, this opportunity in, in verse 8, 25, 8. He says, uh, ask your young men and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on feast day. Please give whatever, your hand, whatever you have at hand to your servant and to your son, David. And so David, is, his plan is basically to pull his guys in and say, all right, I'm going to send some messengers down to Nabal. He happens to be in Carmel. That's where he's got his business. He's shearing some sheep, probably selling the wool. And so I want you to go down there since it's feast day and ask him, hey, what can you spare? We're hungry. We're starving. All right, this seems like a good plan. Now, and then they get down there, and let me back up first and give you some of the geography. So David is here in Engedi, uh, right by the, this would be the Dead Sea, okay? So he's right on the Dead Sea in some caves in Engedi. Um, across, we have Ma'on, which is where Nabal is from, and one mile from Ma'on is Carmel, which is where, uh, where he's, he has his business, this is probably, I don't know, 25, somewhere between probably 30 and 40 miles apart. Um, so you've got, uh, th- but they share this, like, this area in between would be uh, pretty much like grazing territory. So as Nabal and his men are in this territory, David and his men don't go into this territory and pl- pick out the sheep basically, and keep them for themselves, okay? So that's, that's the idea. And so David's plan seems like a pretty good one. I know a really wealthy man, and he's got lots of food to spare, so we're going to go ask him because we didn't kill a sheep when we could have. So there we go. That's going to be good. I think it's a plan. Except for what they didn't account for is Nabal is incredibly selfish, and he refuses completely uh, David's request to give him food. So look at uh, 1 Samuel 25, 9 to 13. Somebody read that out loud for me. When David's young men came, they sent all this to Nabal in the name of David, and, when they wait, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come, for I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him, David said to his men, every man strap on his sword. <laughs> and every man of, of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained at the back. <laughs> with the luggage. <laughs> yeah, with the luggage. <laughs> so <laughs> you keep watch over the supplies. The rest of us are going to strap on swords. Now, what David doesn't realize at this point is that he... That he might be making a tremendous mistake here. Uh, notice what has been typical of David in the past has been to consult the Lord, to ask what the Lord desires in this situation. Uh, but David got, has a case of the hungries, and he's going he's gonna to go, uh, go after this guy because he thinks basically it's rightfully his. We could have taken it from you, and we didn't. We were honorable men, and so now we're going to kill you for it. <laughs> Which somehow in the logic, I say, I guess it sort of plays out. Well, what happens is Abigail, Nabal's wife, this is how good and sweet she is, all right? He's a, he's a fool. He's called a fool from the very beginning of the story. His wife is good-looking and sweet, and she's going to actually defend him. 
She's going to take up for him, even though he's foolhardy. So Abigail gets wind of David's intentions. And the way that she gets wind of David's intentions is that the servant of Nabal hears the request from David and hears Nabal say, basically, I don't know David. I've got, no, I've got nothing to do with David. There's lots of people that are leaving their masters in this day. It's a crazy day and age. I don't know who David is. He might be one of those people. I'm not giving him nothing. Should I take away from my business to give to David? Are you kidding me? And so he flatly refuses. Well, the servants pick up on this and are like, David was actually kind of nice to us. And honestly, Nabal's wife is, is better than Nabal. And so he goes back to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and tells her the story of what happens. And so Abigail becomes aware of what uh, David's intentions are and what's about to happen and basically because a servant sort of breaks protocol, you understand he's taking his life into his own hands by telling Abigail. So look at 25, 14 to 25. Somebody read that out loud. It's okay if you have to guess on names or anything like that. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he uh, railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them they were a wall to us both by by night and by day all the while we were with them keeping the sheep now therefore know this and consider what you should do for harm is determined against our master and against all his house and he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him (laughs) then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sows of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on the donkey. That's a lot. And she said to her, Young man, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. And she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down towards her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Of your servant, Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is so, is he. Nabal, <laughs> Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young man of, the, of my Lord whom you sent. All right. So Abigail, this is how sweet she is. She goes to intercede for her foolish husband and takes David all the supplies that he was asking for, doesn't tell Nabal about it at all because, like we said, he's not going to miss it. And so she takes it to David. She intercepts him coming from En Gedi all the way to Carmel, and she says, don't do it. Please take all of this. You can have it. Just don't do what you plan to do. And David's like, get out of my way, woman. I'm going to kill everybody. 
all right? And she's like, please don't do it. And she petitions him. She falls on her face. She gives him everything that, that he asks for. And basically, in the end of it, David granted a request. So we see in 25, 32 to 35, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, Truly by morning there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. All right, so David uh, grants her request, and you notice he says some things that are going to be really important we're going to get to in just a second. But to continue with the story, um, David grants a request and sends Abigail home. Now, Abigail's intention is to go home and tell Nabal basically what kind of an idiot he was and what he needed to do instead. But when she gets home, she finds Nabal is having a party and is basically in the middle of a drunken feast. Nabal is absolutely wasted and he won't remember any of the conversation and she knows this, and so she decides instead she's going to wait. Look at 25, 36 to 38. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. And so, he has this drunken feast. She doesn't tell him until the next morning. He wakes up, probably hungover, comes to her, or she comes to him, she tells him what happened, what almost happened. David almost came and struck every one of you dead, and I saved you, basically. And Nabal has a heart attack right there at the hearing of this news. Basically, his heart turns to stone, it says. He basically has a heart attack and, I suppose, falls into some sort of a, well, coma or something, some sort of state where uh, his heart is not working properly and he is essentially out of it and it takes 10 days essentially, but he dies at the end of 10 days. And the Bible's clear to tell you the Lord made Nabal aware of just how foolish he was in this endeavor and struck him dead. Now, David has been uh, kind of uh, oh, wait, before I get to that, let's talk about what happens here at the end because this is going to be really important for us in just a minute. So after the death of Nabal, David wastes very little time in... Oh, I, I forgot to put up heart attack up there, so sorry. It's heart attack on the blank. Uh, David wastes little time in taking Abigail, the widow, as his wife. So David sends emissaries to Abigail and says, get your things, you're David's wife now. And so she's like, all right. Uh, so she gets her stuff and she goes. 
Now, what we also find out in the text at the end of this chapter is that Saul has taken Michael away from David that originally was David's. Remember, David had the price of like 200 Philistine foreskins to go get in, uh, in exchange, or no, 100, and he go, goes and gets 200 in exchange for Michael, Saul's daughter, and that was promised to him as part of killing Goliath and all of this kind of stuff. And, um, and so David does that, and he gets Michael, uh, the daughter of Saul, and then in this process, Saul takes, da- takes Michael away from David and gives him to another guy, and so David is now wifeless. And so he takes the wife of, uh, of, Nabal, of dead Nabal and takes him into his, his, as his own wife. And then it says in the text, in verse 43, so 1 Samuel 25, verse 43, David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. All right, so a lot of wife switching around going on here, basically. He, has, he gets Abigail, Michael is gone and given to somebody else, and David also takes a second wife. This is the second of many that we're going to see in the text for both he and Solomon. Um, all right, now, the question is, what is happening in this chapter, and why is it important? Well, for one, we see that in chapter 24, you'll remember, David is the one that exercises restraint. David has an opportunity to kill Saul, and he doesn't take it. David plays the role of the restrainer in chapter 24, even though he could have killed Saul. Well, then we see at the beginning of chapter 25, the typical restrainer for the king, Samuel, dies. Who's going to play that role now? Well, the text kind of leaves it open because we get this situation where David has an opportunity, and he's going to take it to kill this man and take all of his possessions. And he goes to do it. And he realizes in the process that this was a foolish move as Abigail petitions him. And David is clear to say that in chapter chapter 25, David is the one that is restrained. And so what is clear that David makes clear in the passage where he and Abigail are talking is that uh, he says in, in 32 to 35, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you unless you had hurried to, uh, and come to meet me, truly by morning there would not have been left to Nabal one, uh, so much as one male. Then David received from her the hand that she had brought and he said to her, go up in peace. See, I have obeyed your voice and I've granted your petition. So David is pretty clear that he's the one being restrained. And what seems to be made evident in this text is that the task of establishing God's kingdom, which is given to David to do, cannot be entirely entrusted into human hands. That God is going to have to be the one to play the restrainer. But think all the way back to when Samuel was going to leave his sons in charge. And the people protested, we don't want your sons. We don't want you to leave to us another judge. We don't want you to leave to us another king. We want to choose a king for our own. 
and they get Saul. Saul is the one who needs a restrainer in Samuel. And his sons, though they were corrupt, leaving the judgment to them, they would have been trusting in God to again be the restrainer of the judge and to protect Israel from harm. No matter what kind of leadership they have, it's still their responsibility to refrain from idolatry and continue to trust in the Lord, which they've obviously proven they cannot do. But what's happening with David after Samuel dies is God is proving to David, to Abigail, to us as we read the text, that he's the one capable of restraining the king. He's the one capable of keeping the guardrails up for the king. And he's the one that's going to be the protector and guider or director of Israel. Right? So, in reality, the, the king that trusts in the Lord is going to be restrained by God himself. And the one who fails to trust in the Lord, the one who is foolish in the text, is the one who dies. God, out of protection for his own king, strikes Nabal dead with a heart attack. Not immediately, mind you. He waits until Nabal is aware of his folly, and then he kills him. God is the protector. God is the restrainer. So all of these human instruments that we've seen over the course of time, Eli, uh, you know, they've proven that they're not trustworthy. Eli honored his sons above Yahweh. Saul will not be ruled by Yahweh. He continues to run, run amok. Uh, Samuel would have chosen another Saul as king. Remember, uh, David's brothers, he would, have chosen, uh, he would have chosen one of David's older brothers. Oh, look at this guy. He's tall. He's, he's good. You're looking at the outside. I don't look at the outside. Um, so he would have chosen another Saul as king. David would have greased the kingdom path with Nabal's blood. But God is the one that's the protector. He's the only one in whose hands his kingdom can rest. And so how then is God's kingdom actually going to be established on the earth if every human instrument that tries to establish it proves that they can't, that they're too foolish? There's going to be one person that seems capable of doing it. A man. Well, he is fully man but he's also fully God. A man establishing the kingdom and reigning as, think all the way back to Adam. Adam was charged with this task. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and have dominion over it. He couldn't do it. David, Moses, can't do it. David, establish the kingdom in the land. He's going to, as it says, grease the, skid the paths, or grease the skids, or whatever the expression is, with the blood of Nabal to establish his kingdom. He proves that he can't do it. It can only be trusted to divine hands to establish, which God is going to do in Jesus. Um, so we see that Jesus is going to come down. He's going to be entrusted with establishing the kingdom. We're seeing in Matthew, as he comes in, he is saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's here now. I am establishing it. I am beginning it right now. And what does he say to the people that, that, are, that are there? He's telling them to come to him. Come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
All of that language comes from the wisdom literature that the Jews were reading all the time. It comes from the, the wisdom literature in that intertestamental period where wisdom is actually speaking. And when wisdom speaks, she uses those words. Come to me and learn from me. And Jesus is now saying, I am wisdom personified. I'm not going to do foolish things in establishing this kingdom. And I'm not going to play the Nabal. I'm not going to play the fool. But what happens in the Jesus story is there's lots of Nabals gathered around that are ready to kill him. And they do an actual, a foolish thing. And in their killing of Jesus, they actually secure his establishment of the kingdom. All right. Now, there is this question that rises up. Is there any questions on that? Before I move to this next very strange topic. Uh, polygamy. <laughs> so there are n- numerous examples uh, in the Old Testament in particular of polygamy. And so we see here David takes multiple wives. We're going to see him take more wives. We're going to see him have concubines. We've seen this before with Abraham, with uh, Jacob. He has two wives, two concubines. We see this with lots of uh, uh, Samuel's going to, I mean, Samuel, Solomon's going to have uh, 300 wives and 700 concubines, or I may have that backwards, but he's got a thousand of a mix of the, of the two. Um, so they're going to they're, they're gonna take on a lot of wives and a lot of, not to be crass, but uh, sex slaves, essentially. And so how do we think about this? Because we live in a, uh, what, what should be a monogamous culture, especially in uh, the church, we teach monogamy. We teach that the Bible teaches monogamy, and yet we read back into the Old Testament and we go, but there is polygamy all over this thing. So what, what do we do with that? Well, the first thing we got to do is kind of put it in, in the right historical categories. First, polygamy is cited in the Old Testament for sure, but the majority of Israelites were monogamous. Uh, so we do have to establish that. Polygamy, though we see it quite frequently in the Old Testament with certain characters, it's by no means a culturally accepted thing, uh, that the vast majority of people in the Old Testament even uh, were monogamous. The other thing that we have to note is that we get it, the tone of polygamy is set very early on. In fact, it's set in Genesis chapter 4. Do you remember the significance of Genesis chapter 4? What happens in Genesis chapter 4? Do you remember? Cain messes up. He kills his brother. And all of that happens... See, this is... If you study the Bible, then you'll know. Genesis chapter 4 follows right after Genesis chapter 3. All right? You learn things like this along the way. All right? It just... Wisdom descending from on high. You just... You figure it out after a while that that's how it goes. Well, Genesis chapter 3 is a big deal because that is where Adam and Eve listen to the serpent and take from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The fall happens. Immediately following that, Cain kills Abel, and we have a person in chapter 4 taking on multiple wives. So in chapter 4, as a result of the fall, we now have murder and polygamy right there in the chapter. And he's, he's what, what is his name? Why am I blanking on his name? I'll come up with it in just a second, or I'll think of it in the middle of the night and be like, why didn't I think of that? Um, 
Lamech, good grief, yeah. Uh, Lamech immediately takes on multiple wives. So we see from the very beginning pages of of the text, this is not a good thing. Adam was given to, uh, Eve was given to Adam. The two were given to each other, and they were helpmates for each other. This is how God created it. Therefore, man shall leave his, his father and mother and cleave to his wife. We see that established very early on. Sin enters the picture, and now we have a, one guy killing his brother and another guy taking on multiple wives. So we see the tone of polygamy set from very early on. And then after that, we get Abraham. We get several other people throughout the text that take on multiple wives, and it never turns out well for them, ever. It never does. As soon as Abraham takes on a, basically a concubine and has a child by her, all of a sudden there's competition inside the family. There's strife and anxiety. This happens with Rachel and Leah. This happens with uh, several other people along the way. The, these wives are what leads Solomon into idolatry. All of these things are a product of the fall. And so what we know is, one, it was not uh, common amongst the vast majority of people in the Old Testament. Its tone is set right after the fall. It always ends bad. It's also implied in Hebrew law that monogamy uh, seems to have become the norm by the time of the monarchy. So that the vast majority of people of like commoners couldn't afford to have a second wife. All right? Just flatly. They, could, they couldn't afford it. A lot of the r- richer people you'll see actually have multiple wives or, or concubines or various other things, but, uh, but the vast majority of the commoners, that, that isn't the case. Now, by the time we get to the post-exilic age, post-exilic being after Babylon, okay, after Babylon's over, uh, you see that monogamy is pretty much all that's there, and marriages were predominantly monogamous, but divorce is becoming all the more frequent. So instead of a guy taking on multiple wives, he uses the law of Moses to write a certificate of divorce for her. Now, by the time we get to Jesus's day and age, what is the expectation of, 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 of people there? They're able to write their wives a certificate of divorce. Monogamy is pretty much the status quo by the time we get to Jesus in society. So polygamy is not much of an issue anymore, but the writing of certificate of divorce is. So this is why you get Jesus saying this has a strong uh, take on marriage, and the people around him go, well, then why does Moses allow us to write a certificate of divorce? And you remember what, what Jesus' answer is? because your hardness of heart. You couldn't bear with the actual teaching of God. That's why. Because if you did, you would just break it and the sin would just heap up in in loads on you, essentially, is, is the answer. So it's because of your hardness of heart that you were able to get divorced. But it, it wasn't always so, he says. In fact, in the beginning, it was one man, one woman, and that's the way it was supposed to be. And so he, he applies this really strict law with, uh, with divorce, which is so common in their day. And what they're doing, it seems, there we go, there we go, um, is that what he's teaching is that it's one man, one woman for a lifetime, and anyone that divorces his wife and goes and gets another is committing adultery and essentially su- submitting her to adultery. 
And so Jesus is laying this out in the text, which seems really strong for the people that are there because that's, that's what they're commonly engaged in, way more so than polygamy. Polygamy is not, not much of an issue by Jesus' day uh, and time. But so the reality, when we're looking at this picture and Jesus gives them the answer, it was because of your hardness of heart. The way I typically think about it, and I think the way that works best, is a lot, there's a lot of things that we see in the, in the Old Testament that are permitted or are dealt with with a lot of patience, but are, are not necessarily ideal. And we see in Jesus, they come back to where they're supposed to be. So you have in the fall where God is telling Adam and Eve, walk this way. And in the fall, Adam and Eve turn and walk the exact opposite way. What, what happens as a result, murder, uh, uh, polygamy, adultery, lots of other things begin to take place as man continues to walk this way away from God. And what we see over the course of time as he establishes his law, working with fallen man, as he puts his, his law out there with fallen man, as Jesus enters the picture, what God is doing is taking that pathway that man is taking away from God and curbing it back to the way God is intending for it to be. So by the time we get to Jesus, what we see is that the fulfillment of the law is to walk in the way that Jesus is walking and to follow the law that he's establishing. So when he sets up the Sermon on the Mount and says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Let's, let's actually walk along the actual path and we'll see that it's not just adultery. That's because your hardness of heart. That's all you could bear. But what I'm telling you is anyone that lusts inside his heart is, is guilty of adultery already. So we're actually walking along the path that, that he's intending for us to walk on, which is the law that God would have laid down from the beginning had man not been fallen in heart of heart. Does that make sense? Okay. So what then happens is that Jesus is not only establishing this kingdom, but in giving to us the Holy Spirit, his kingdom is now expanding into the hearts of others as they receive the Holy Spirit by confession of sin and belief and profession of faith in, in Christ. They receive the Holy Spirit and then they are given the they're, they're empowered, essentially, by the indwelling Holy Spirit to not live according to their fallen nature, but actually live according to the law that Christ is setting for them. So his kingdom is actually beginning to flourish and take place as we begin, as a church body, to act like Jesus act and to walk like he walked. So he has established this kingdom in a way that David never could. Because it's always dependent on David using his own wisdom and his own guidance and God keeping him away from it. Whereas now, God is still guiding us in the ways that we walk inside his kingdom, but he's doing so by the power of his Holy Spirit dwelling inside. Um, questions? That's probably a lot of biblical theology, but yeah, go ahead. Did John Smith just kind of make He did, yeah. Um, but, I, but I would say, I think John Smith actually saw something. And I think it was demonic. Uh, I have when I yeah you said John Smith I th- I thought you I th- did you mean Joseph Smith yeah yeah I thought that's what you meant and I got on the same page with you I was on the same page with you yeah jo- Joseph John Smith was Pocahontas uh, that thing was uh, <laughs> and First Baptist that's right yeah uh, the First Baptist Church of America um, yeah so Joseph Smith I, I honestly think I'm convinced he Muhammad I, I think several other people in history actually did see something that led them uh, completely astray, that it was demonic and it was established um, by, the, by the work of demonic forces. 
Uh, now, there's no doubt he made up a lot of stuff too. <laughs> but I think, I think most of it was, was, you know, demonic influence, as is a lot of cultic behavior. Yeah. Other questions? Brigham Young took it, I think, even further, didn't he? I'm pretty sure Joseph Smith established polygamy and then Brigham Young, like, went haywire, if I remember right. So, yeah. Any other questions? Anything? Nothing? All right. <laughs> do I think do I think monogamy is safe? Is that what you is that what you mean? Oh man, look with a Burgerfell in 2015, there is there is now no reason that they can't legalize every form of relationship that could possibly come about. So we're already seeing uh, plural plural marriages, which is different than polygamy, but kind of not as well, where you would have, if you had three people in a marriage, uh, each one of them are married to each other. So just wait. It's going to be legal. I'm, I guarantee you there's no way that the Supreme Court now, with the precedent they've set, can establish law any other way. So monogamy, as far as our culture is concerned, is, I mean, is being shown the exit very quickly. Got to change the hearts of the people. The law, the law, it doesn't matter. Honestly, it doesn't matter at this point what the law is because the hearts of the people are already there. They were there with divorce. We, we, we were like, we were completely okay with divorce and just, you know, well, it, it's fine. It is what it is. You know, it's a tragedy. It's terrible. It's awful. And we were, we were okay with it. And society tolerated men just leaving their families and running, running away and not holding them to account for it. And it's, it, it's awful. It started there, and then it, it just, it's continuing to go. When I was growing up, when that happened in our family, it was a shameful thing. Yeah. It's no longer a shameful thing. It's no longer a shameful thing. And it, and it should be. Uh, it's crazy. Go ahead. Well, I answer the question I want to answer, so go ahead. Paul gives us some insight there in Acts when he's talking to the, the people in Athens, saying that God bore with patience. Um, so there, there's, that, there's that that I think helps kind of frame it in the right territory. But what God is doing is not establishing an unholy law. It's, it's just, it's, if you look at it on a continuum, uh, Jesus would be the wall, which is the goal where we're getting to, right? And the law is here. Right, so he's he's moving humanity and setting a pace for them to for them to be corrected, but you also have to remember as far as time goes. Peter tells us Second Peter three, uh, with God a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. So 
you know, as far as Abraham goes, that was three and a half days ago, you know, maybe four days ago. So not, not that long in terms, of, in terms of God days for him to curb this sort of appetite back to setting the, the tone where Jesus is. And so it's more of just bringing his people along slowly, right, is more what we, what we see there. Cool. All right, let's pray, and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for your text, your, your word, how timeless it is, how um, it, f- it feels like some of these stories happened not that long ago, and we can see some of these things play out even today. Um, and so even though they were years ago and, and so far away from our current culture, but uh, we see they're timeless and timely, that they have much insight into our own day and um, give us insight into how we live, but also testifies just how important Christ is for us uh, to establish his kingdom and to establish your kingdom and to, to allow us entrance into it. Uh, what an amazing gift that is and how, how happy and excited we are to be a part of it, and what a privileged position we have as sons and daughters, considering where we came from. So we owe all of that to you and to your grace that brought us there. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.